Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with an extremely exciting guest, uh, somebody I've come to know in the last couple of months and somebody who I respect a bunch. And this is a man by the name of Randy Briggs, who is the CEO of leadsgrow.io. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Randy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here for sure. Okay, awesome. So I'm ready to jump back into it. Me and Randy have been uh, talking for the last uh, almost, almost a year at this point, honestly. Um, I forget how we ended up getting in touch, but um, a guy who runs an agency that's uh, really successful and doing some awesome work, one of the rare gems in the world of marketing and people that are doing their own thing and not copying other people's funnels. So um, he's got a lot of awesome ideas in copywriting and just the philosophy of sales and marketing, how all those things kind of combine, which I'm sure we're going to get into. But I wanted to start off with something that I found out about you, which I think is really important on how you know you see the things in a way that a lot of people might not. And um, that's your professional background. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up getting to the agency world in the first place and what you were doing before that. Yeah, a very long road to the agency world. But and at the time when I was on that road, there were many moments when I was very unsatisfied. But having landed here and taken the path that I did, I feel very grateful for those moments. So I mean, how far back do you want me to go? Because the story really, honestly, the story really starts in a movie theater in like 2009 when I watched Pursuit of Happiness with uh, Will Smith. And, and I saw the story of Chris Gardner and I had a very impoverished childhood. And I thought, hey, there's a scene in the movie where Chris sees this guy roll up in a Lambo and he's like, I want a Lambo. What do you do? And the guy's like, I'm a stockbroker. Chris is like, I'm going to be a stockbroker. I'm in the theater like, I'm going to be a stockbroker. And that's like how I got into uh, finance. And I went to work for Merrill Lynch as a financial advisor and got into that position through a stroke of luck from being in sales and then also sitting for the CFA exam, which is like just this massive and unbelievably difficult you know, financial exam. And I didn't even come close to passing, but by just the exam has so much weight in the industry just by having sat and studied and taken the exam, I, I got kind of in the door at Merrill. And then worked as a financial advisor for a while. That program is designed to chew you up and spit you out. So I got spat out. It was like the 99% of people that get in there don't make it. So I was the, among the 99 and grateful for that experience. I went and opened my, my own business shortly after that, uh, music school, actually. And that story is where I really learned before I'd read any books on sales and marketing, anything about funnels or creating an offer or the slippery slope of gradualization or anything. I, I, I just somehow naturally gravitated towards this sort of scientific advertising way of thinking. And so I pulled that off and sold that for about 12 months. And uh, about 12 months later, sold it for cash. and I bought a truck and a trailer and a motorcycle. And I traveled the country because I'd never been out of my state and uh, landed at a job, Jackson National as a wholesaler. Now, what's important about that is Jackson, to this day, they're owned by Prudential UK that just went public. They manage $550 billion, so a little more than half a trillion dollars. So I was on the sales team there. And what I got to experience was really what is probably still to this day, the greatest, most well-designed, well-maintained sales machine in the history of capitalism. These guys have every single thing figured out from top to bottom. You're not going to find a better producing sales team potentially on the planet because every year we moved $28 billion worth of product to financial advisors. And when people ask me what that was like, it was like picking up the phone 
and selling the Wolf of Wall Street as stock. It's exactly what it was. And so I got to experience in many ways, still before I had my direct marketing training, one of the best direct marketing machines on the planet. And that really kind of shapes not just me in terms of like the marketer and salesperson, but it gave me a, a view of like what it looks like to get this thing done really perfectly. And so uh, for reasons out of my control, I no longer worked in that, in that business. And I found myself sort of tired of selling. And I don't know if you've ever been there, Jan. Definitely or been listening. there. Definitely been yes. there. So I sort of fell out of, out of love with the game of selling. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way because ultimately what I felt like was a human tape recorder because I would make the same pitch to 80 advisors, 80 times a day, all day, every day for a couple of years. And I just finally thought like, there's got to be, I mean, I don't want to be a human tape recorder or a human parakeet. There's got to be a better way to sell. And so I actually just quit. I just, just quit selling. I, I just said, I'm out. And, uh, and through a series of like fortunate events, I found myself sort of reinvigorated into selling, but it was mostly when I discovered marketing and specifically copywriting because the best direct response copywriters usually have a sales background. Guys like David Ogilvy, for example, used to sell kitchenware door to door. And then he, you know, he's the guy that started and then, you know, exploded what's now Ogilvy and Mather. And if you read the stuff that he writes, he points out like the best copywriters were first salespeople. And so I feel like I mastered copywriting in a very short amount of time because of that sales experience. And I just have a, a penchant for the intake and output of information. But when I discovered that, the problem that it solved for me was being able to make a great pitch to more than one person at a time. And as simple as that is, like either my perspective is the salesperson is the media or the sales media is the media. And by that, I mean a video sales letter, a letter in the mail, a webinar, an advertisement. But in writing these things, you can sell to a thousand people or 10,000 people at a time versus selling one-on-one. -on -one. And so access to that kind of scale solved a big emotional problem for me. And so my professional background was long and varied, but it brought me to this place now where I work in direct marketing and lead generation, mostly for attorneys. And having all of that experience up till now has been like an incredible blessing in disguise. It was very painful at the time, but now the perspective it gave me, I'm just so grateful for that experience. So is, is, is that what you're looking for on the history there? Absolutely. And, and we got a lot of stuff to go off from there, but it's kind of interesting. It's like one of those situations where you find yourself in a place where all the pieces kind of fit. Like I can see parts of your background, like being able to understand the quantitative side of direct response, running a small business on your own, understanding the importance of sales and how that plugs in the copy. Because this is kind of one of the crazy things too. I was on the phone with, I'm not going to say who, but he was, uh, he's co-authored books with Dan Kennedy. Uh, and one of the things he, he noticed that was, uh, it was I, I threw this out there. I said, you know, most of the people that are coming up in marketing these days, they don't know how to write a sales letter. And it's kind of funny because how are you going to learn if you bought some, you know, for uh, the course from Russell Brunson and, and you don't really understand the pacing, like the person who sold cold calls or, you know, God forbid door to door. And I think, you know, I've, yeah. I've, uh, I've done cold calls. I've, I've done door to door. I mean, you, you probably, I, mean, I don't know if uh, you're probably inside. I've definitely gone door to door. Yeah. yeah. My, my, my first business, I knocked door to door to generate customers. Yeah. Cause if you can understand the ticking clock that you can see on somebody's face door to door, or you can hear on the phone, then you understand the urgency that you need to grab somebody's attention on coffee. Right. Yeah. And, and those are the things that people who don't come from that background really don't understand. So that's, uh, you know, it's, it's an awesome story. And I think it, it, it provides a lot of context. And again, I'm not surprised at all at how good you are at writing copy. And I've seen your stuff and I love it. But um, let's kind of talk about that next step. So, you know, when you ended up getting into stuff for the first place, where did you end up going? And uh, what kind of led you to, you know, who you were trying to follow in terms of the, the world of copywriting? So I actually, by the time, this is a really important marketing lesson for me, 
what got me into this space was that I was in a, a period of transition, which made me highly receptive to certain marketing messages. And that made me in market for stuff like, um, like I took Sam Bubbins Consulting Accelerator, which is now I don't think even available. And that introduced me to direct marketing, but it also introduced me to copywriting as a craft. And then, you know, the great copywriters, they're so good at writing copy that will sell how to write copy that the ones that are really built for it, like myself, like we get sucked in. I went deep down that rabbit hole. And so the guys that I studied were, you know, my, my perspective on studying copy, especially direct marketing, is you need to study the guys that your teachers are studying. You need to study those teachers, teachers. And I went all the way back to like the late 1800s, studying like E. Haldeman Julius and like P.T. Barnum. And but what brought me to that was guys like Dan Kennedy. I do study Russell Brunson stuff, Mavaldo Albuquerque out of Agora, Gary Halbert, of course. Dan Kennedy is one of the biggest ones. Clayton Makepeace, who just recently passed. And, you know, a lot of I'm John Carlton and I consumed, I think, any single piece of copy training I could get my hands on, mostly because I just saw the that it's not the only piece of leverage, but it's one of the biggest pieces of leverage. It's one of those things like if your copy isn't really cranking out and matching and really talking to the prospect at that moment that they're in that sort of window of receptiveness to the message, if your copy is not doing that, the entire the campaign's gone. Like you don't have a campaign if the copy is not on lock. And so I understood that that was where the real, real leverage was. And if you can write great copy, then all the rest of it can fall in place, in my opinion. And so Dan Kennedy, Clayton Makepeace, Gary Halbert, those are the guys that come from like 60s, 70s, 80s direct marketing world. And Gary wrote the most sale, uh, mailed sales letter of all time, as far as anybody can tell. Dan's probably got the most longevity in that industry. And Clayton, I think, is probably the most talented. I mean, I would say Clayton's probably a better copywriter than Gary. Although Gary's family would have my head on a plate for that. I think Clayton's really, really incredible. So these are the guys I learned from. And then I studied their teachers and their teachers are guys like Joe Sugarman, Joseph Kosman. And actually, I think Sugarman actually just, I just saw his obituary. He just passed direct marketing legends at a time when there wasn't internet. You know, he's actually the guy that, that sold the uh, ant farm. He took it and all he did, by the way, was change the distribution channel. He wrote a great sales letter and he took it from the classroom and made it a, a, a kid's toy in their bedroom. And then if you listen to Gary and you study who he studied, uh, a guy named E. Haldeman Julius sold 100 million books in like 1910 to 1930s, I believe. And the way that he did it was, you know, one of the fundamental practices of direct marketing taught by uh, Claude Hopkins in, in scientific advertising. He basically all he did was change the titles to the book. And so the whole book is about how he was able to sell 100 million books with newspaper ads only. And he would change the titles of the book and the titles that sold the most books, obviously he would keep. So he would split test. And that stuff to me was so fascinating that literally just what you name something will change the sales of it. So those are the guys that I studied. And yeah, I mean, if someone is watching this and wants to get into copywriting and direct marketing, probably the place to start would be scientific advertising. And then also who wrote how to make advertising that pays? I forget the gentleman's name. He works for David Ogilvie, British guy. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. I'm going to kill myself. He's, I mean, he's older now. Yeah. I know you're exactly. You know what I'm talking about, about though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Believe... Um, <laughs> it's okay. We get, well, we'll get this. Out. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get this he's out. out there. So, yeah. so if you look him up, British guy. And then, um, so if you go down that road, you'll find they're very open with like, you can find everything Gary Halbert recommends, like, like, uh, I think it's David Suarez. Uh, he wrote a book, seven steps to freedom, incredible direct marketing book. And so, you know, all that stuff's out there and that's what really kind of 
shaped me as a copywriter and, and my understanding of, you know, how to make an offer. Oh, Daniel Levis is fantastic. He's, yeah. he's a modern guy also studied by Clayton. So that's where I got my copy chops. Yeah. And I, I kind of asked you that for two reasons, Randy. So one, I was genuinely curious, but two, I want to kind of point something out and breaking the third wall a little bit too, to anyone that's listening. Um, one of the things that I always harp on, on this podcast is that you need to understand the fundamentals to really reach the high level of all these things too. And one of the things I found so impressive about Randy is that he really understands these things on a deep level. And, you know, we probably just rattle off 30 or 40 books just now. Like this isn't the kind of thing that you can read a couple of blog posts and call yourself a master of. And again, so it's just like, I think it's super important. But another thing that you mentioned that I found super interesting was that the concept of having copy, and I want to, uh, I'm going to transition this to something that we actually spoke about the other day, but the distinction between copywriting and sales. And like, this is something that you'll hear classically discussed when uh, we're talking about like, you know, SaaS companies, there's always the uh, the tension between marketing and sales. Sales says, oh, that wasn't qualified. Marketing says, well, you know, you guys, what do you want at this point, right? So, but when we talked about this the other day, I wanted to just uh, follow up on this conversation because you think about marketing and sales and branding as something, it's, it's less of a distinct set of skills and more of a continuum. So could you yeah. talk a little bit more about how you think about that and, and you know, how, you, how you might be helping your clients in terms of setting them up for a consultation or a process that might be easier than if it was something a little bit more generic? So it would be easier to categorize those as separate activities. And that is fundamentally because of the way that our mind categorizes information. So we have this like sorting mechanism. And actually the way that this works is a tool of persuasion as well, but we have this sorting mechanism. And so we have to, when we receive a piece of information, we have to categorize it because if we think too much about it, the brain takes up something like, I don't know, 5% of the body mass, but 20 to 40% of the energy consumption comes from the frontal lobe. So we're designed to filter information, categorize it to reduce thinking power. So when we say sales, we can categorize it as one thing, marketing is another. And, uh, and so they're separate in our mind, but to me, they're the same thing. And branding is the same thing as direct response. The goal, in, in my opinion, is at the end of the day, we're trying to create an offer, send it to the market and engage our customers and provide a service in exchange for value. But sales and marketing are the same thing because the only difference in my mind is sales is marketing one-to-one and marketing is sales one-to-many. And they're the same thing. And so what we have is a message and a market and a media. Now that's fundamental direct marketing. You read that in any direct marketing book. Bob Stone, I think is the first guy to point that out, but those are the three primary variables. And so if the market is a group of people or one person, it's still a market. So if you're selling one-to-one, that prospect is a fractal portion of the market. That's still marketing. They're a portion of the market. Now, if you take that message to the prospect and you apply it to the entire market, we call that marketing, but that's still selling one-to-many. And the only difference to me, sales and marketing, the same thing, because what we call marketing is saying, uh, let's do an ad to 10,000 people. Okay. And what we call selling is talking one-on-one. But the only difference is that one is one-to-one, the other is one-to-many. It's the same message. And then the other difference, I suppose it's not the only difference. The other difference is the media. And media, by definition, is anything in between you and your prospect. And media, the root word is median, like what's in the middle of the road, in the middle. So it's in between. So media, by that definition, can be anything. Right now, this podcast is a piece of media between you, me, Jan, and the listener. This is between us. This is a piece of media. If you have a salesperson, that speaking voice and that person is the media communicating your message. The salesperson is the media. If you have a billboard, that's the media. If you have a sales video, that's the media. And so in my mind, sales and marketing are one and the same. It's just a matter of changing the media and how many people you're selling or marketing to at a time. It's the exact same process. We're trying to get somebody to take a behavior to solve their problem in exchange for for value. But 
whether it's sales or marketing is totally irrelevant. Whether it's one to many is not totally irrelevant. The differences are subtle, but it's the same process. Is that is that what you're asking? Is that making sense? Is that just yeah, hundred percent? And it kind of goes back to what you're saying earlier. It's like you know, not wanting to be a human tape recorder. And you know, I think I've also heard this yes. people say, you know, uh, copywriting is salesmanship in print. And if you have a yes. situation where you can scale up that kind of a situation, you're, you're you're reaching the same ends through different means. Okay, so I want to switch gears and. Um, Kind of give you an opportunity to flex on some of the work that you guys have been doing recently. So, um, do you mind? And again, uh, as much as you're comfortable with with sharing, but like let's let's talk a little bit more about what you've been working on in terms of uh, the agency stuff. So, what kind of practice areas have you been having fun with? And uh, you know, let's yeah. let's talk about what you've been up to. <laughs> so, yeah, this is the fun stuff. So, the digital world changes all the time, and we have worked with clients across. I mean, so when I started this sort of endeavor. You know, we worked with anybody. We've done auto dealing stuff. We've done like potty training for toddlers. We've done coaching. We've done sales training. And then we worked with attorneys as well, financial advisors, home contractors. So just all across the board. And what we found very quickly for an agency is, you know, basically we're going to be about as successful as our clients are. So we don't want to work in low value areas. And by that, I mean, like if we're selling an auto detailing appointment, that's worth a hundred at the most. And that's that. So we don't really want to work in that space. And we did some work with attorneys and found basically we were able to get them results pretty easily, especially at the time we did a lot of bankruptcy work. And, you know, that market has softened considerably. We still do some work there, but through the work we've done, got some referrals and probably our most fun project right now are the book funnels we're doing in family law. I love book funnels for a number of reasons. Probably the biggest is that, so a reader is by the very nature of the fact that they are readers, they usually have higher income, they're information hungry. And when you put a book in front of those people, when you author that book, you get authority by the very nature of being an author. But also you have this opportunity to engage an audience and really segment the list based strictly on what they're purchasing, which is a book. Now you have a list of book buyers. Now you know that list is more valuable than like an opt-in list because you don't know if those opt-in lists are active prospects uh, or sorry, like, you know, not active prospects, but you don't know really what level those, those prospects are engaging on. And anyway, if you get them to read the book, then what you have are now a series of stories. And the way that we do this is influential story selling. So I haven't really told any stories on this podcast that fit this criteria, but what we're doing in these books is we're, we're separating our attorney from every other attorney in the market, A, by being an author, but B, by telling these stories and creating a bond between the author and the reader and teaching and glorifying principles between the author and the reader. Now, if we came right out and just said what we wanted that reader to know, understand, believe, perceive, and find valuable, they may or may not really grasp it. If we embed those beliefs into a story, we not only can communicate it in a way that is understood, we can wrap it in an emotional sort of container. But more than that, we can make that principle stick. Because if you read this book called Made to Stick, Certain stories inherently stick, others don't. And the reason that's important is because when we're going out and buying ad space, like if you go and look at a billboard, you're going to get X amount of impressions for X dollars, period. So one of the ways you can get 10 times more out of your marketing is to tell stories that inherently repeat themselves in your prospect's mind. They're sticking to their mind. So if I tell you one story that's good and made to stick and another story that's bad, if the story is good enough, the prospect's going to remember that story for several years and it will go through their brain hundreds of times. And so we've gotten now a hundred impressions out of one great story versus a bad story that they just totally dismiss it and forget. So you can't get that story into your prospect's consciousness and awareness 
unless you put it in book form and you have an engaged audience. And so those are some of our most fun projects by far because we get to sit down and really, by the way, that, that process of story bonding, which we go through to help our attorneys communicate their life experience in such a way that their prospects now develop this relationship with them. When we go through that process, every time that we've done it, by the end of that story bonding process, the attorney and I have this incredible friendship and we feel like best friends. And it just creates this, I mean, it's called a, a super normal uh, stimulus. Is that the phrase? Super conscious persuasion, maybe is, I, I forget exactly what it's called, but basically it's like, you know, the tool of persuasion that's being used on you and it works anyway. And that's what these stories tend to do. I know I'm trying to create this persuasive story so that my prospect can use it with their clients and create that story bond. But in going through that process that I've studied, measured, and implemented and designed, I still experience that bonding phenomenon through the stories. So that's our most fun work. And uh, to get that into readers' minds, um, we use Facebook ads, Google PPC ads. We run to an opt-in form. We have them buy the book and we physically ship it out. We print it and ship it out to them. We have them read it. And then we do like sales letter follow-ups. And, and those are the most fun funnels to me because that's the really deep... I mean, we're pulling psychological levers that you're not going to find by just Googling, you know, marketing for attorneys. Like you're not going to find those by Googling that. And that to me is the most fun because we get to apply the really, not just interesting, but the really the, the effective tools as well. And so I, I geek out on that stuff. Is that a good example of what you're looking for? Oh, that's fantastic. And I, I got to say, man, a couple of things I really, really appreciate that about that is that like one, and then kind of going full circle where we started there's the ability to do new stuff and there's people who are actually doing new stuff. I have never heard of an approach like that before. It's likely that you're probably the only person doing it, which is why it's going to be more valuable than somebody throwing up XYZ lander plus XYZ landing page and just running PPC traffic and trying to get free consultations or right after that. Yeah, right, right. I mean, the other thing that I love about this too, is that when you think about the actual sale, that's going to follow from that you're, and this is something that we've been thinking about a ton uh, on the estate planning side, just like, you know, basically what really separates you from any, everyone else, right? And if it is just a landing page and an ad interaction, then you know that's an experience that you can have 15 times in two minutes if you want to just click on every ad or every yes. you know, first page of Google situation. But after they've read the book, first of all, it's the dude who wrote the book that counts for a lot, <laughs> a lot of people's minds. And they have that story with the person. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, we're not talking about apples to apples anymore. Like you're really differentiating in that instance. Yeah. And, you know, even if they don't want to take, a, you know, that you're probably building the opportunity to create more margin in that business in terms of, you know, whatever they want to charge, or if they don't want to do it, they're producing a bunch of goodwill that they're not going to end up collecting, which is fantastic. Or like, you know, that's going to spread to other stuff too. So I think that's, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. I'll tell you a couple other points on that. It does increase price elasticity. You can charge more as the attorney simply for having done that. And I didn't tell you this at the beginning and you haven't asked, but the way that I found those kinds of campaigns is that my superpower is that I read 700 words a minute, which less than one in a million people can do. So what I've done is I've just read hundreds of books a year and just pieced this all together. But the other part about that, there's three books, Descartes' Error, Insignificant Objects, which is very hard to find, and then The Red Queen. And I'll give you the summary of these books really quickly. The Red Queen basically says that whatever system or environment is in place now, it is the next stage of evolution, which survives. And so like big fish eat smaller fish, birds eat big fish. And I don't know what eats birds, but basically like it, it takes this evolutionary perspective in saying that whatever is staying standing still is in itself going to eventually be, you know, eaten up by the next sort of evolution. And so 
the analogy is the Red Queen. It's those that, that you run as fast as you can to stay in place, just like the Red Queen from uh, Alice in Wonderland. So we take this approach. We say, what is everybody doing? Well, we can't be doing that because eventually that's going to stop working. So let's just go to the next step. So that's one. Two is if you read Descartes' error, what you'll discover is there is a study that showed that not only are emotions and decisions like linked, they're literally the same physiological process in the mind. And the way they proved this was they took like 16 people who had this unique brain injury. I forget the name of the area in the brain. It's not like Broca's area, but basically they were incapable of having emotions, no emotions. So the emotional center of the brain was, was injured. It was malfunctioning. And these people could not make simple decisions like salt versus pepper or ketchup versus mustard. They literally could not choose because they had no feelings towards these objects and they were incapable of choosing between them. So when we're trying to get somebody to make a decision, our job is not just to give them the logical reasons. We do need to give them those, but we give them those after we've activated the emotional center of the brain, which is where the decision actually occurs. So the only way to do that is by a great storytelling. So we create a story which evokes an emotional response, which creates the decision. And then as long as that decision is created there, and we give them the logical reasons that their, that their frontal lobe is going to go through to check the boxes. Then we've created the sale. And then the third part, the third book that's really interesting about that process is called Insignificant Objects. And this sort of demonstrates why storytelling creates price elasticity and creates an emotional bond. These guys took 100 objects from like pawn shops. This is an old story. And they listed them on, on eBay. They listed like the facts, what it was, and the price. And then they made parallel listings telling fictional stories. Now, they let the buyers know these were fictional stories, and they hired 100 writers to go through and write fictional stories about these objects. Crazy stories. And when you sold just the object without the story, I mean, we're talking like a dollar, maybe a dollar fifty, really what they paid for them, trinkets. When they told stories about these objects, I think the greatest multiple was 137. So they paid a dollar, and then they got $137 is what they sold it for. Now, the only difference, the only difference was the story that was told. And they did like hundreds of these. And the average, I think, was a 32x increase in sale price, 64, 80, 127x. And so if you read that book, Insignificant Objects, you'll see like the most important part of your marketing are the stories that you are telling. And so that's where that book funnel kind of came from. And now you've got me geeking out, Jan. You've got me really geeking out here. So. Dude, I love it. I, it's kind of funny. I think I ended up having, um, I did a solo pod at one point too, about the people who had the, the brain injury. And like, yeah, like they literally couldn't decide whether they wanted coffee or orange juice for breakfast because it's... Yeah. But it's crazy because a lot of times too, and like like kind of sometimes when when I dip my toe into this part of the, the world of psychology, sometimes people throw up the sign of the cross. They're like, oh my God, what is this? The devil's work. But look, at the end of the day, we're trying to help connect people with your service, which if you know, if you're proud about running your business, is something that you want, right? And I'm sure that you know, if we have the situation where you've had a career worthy of writing a book as a family law attorney, then you probably have more experience than the guy who's just, you know, flooding the market with abo ads or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> But I mean, this is super interesting to you, Randy, because it's like one of these situations where going back to the Red Queen, I think as an industry, we're heading towards the end of the searchable market. So mm-hmm. I think basically as time goes on, everyone who's trying to compete for the last mile, most aware traffic, the effective tax on that by all the competition that's focused on stuff like Google search straight up and LSAs and, you know, all the different directories are there. It's just basically, you're either going to be in the position where it's too expensive. 
you're getting price shopped way too hard or some combination of the two, where I just think the value is getting absolutely sucked out of it, which mm-hmm. in my opinion means like the, the solution too. And like, we, we've kind of found some interesting parallel paths of how we've done this, like our focus on presentations for estate planning attorneys. And with this instance, your focus on the education for family law attorneys, it's like, you're really zigging where somebody else is zagging. Right. So it's just like, I also say this too, family law is really interesting because I think it's one of those things that's classically thought of a hair on fire situation because you've got the guy who just got served his divorce papers by his wife and he's got to get that figured out. Yeah. But you also have the you also have the woman who uh, you know wasn't happy with uh, the husband coming home with lipstick on his collar at two a.m. <laughs> six months before that. So, how do you think about the different timelines with the different practice areas that you're working on, and how much you market to those people differently? Yeah. So, the interesting part in terms of scale for an agency is a lot of times like practice areas are one thing, and then the state bar and that and, and that attorney's you know district is another. Like. If you're doing traffic and DUI in St. Louis, you got 14 days, period. So this is a high urgency funnel. So we don't send them to a book funnel. We don't send them to an appointment. We drive to a sales call and they pick up the phone and that's the inbound call script. That's the appointment. And so, because you only have 14 days. So when we do mailers in, in that area, like, hey, it's it's not a three-step mailer over two months. It's a letter Monday, a letter Wednesday, a letter Friday. Hey, bro, you might be committing a felony. You need to call us now. You have Otherwise, these are the consequences. So contrast that to like family law. So we've got a scenario in Florida and a scenario in uh, uh, Maryland. And in Florida, what we're doing is what I think a lot of, it was, won't be new to attorneys, but we're going to the uh, courthouse filings. So, and then we're mailing. And we've been doing a three-step mailing. Uh, we just switched to a four-step and we're about to replace that with the book funnel and test mailing the book. But there are pretty amusing scenarios sometimes because Sometimes the gentleman doesn't even know that his wife has filed for divorce. And, and we're the guys or my clients are the guys calling him or even sending a letter saying, hey, you know, bad news. Uh, by the way, if we're the first to let you know, we're so sorry. And, you know, if you listen to these call recordings, it gets, you know, sad, but comedic very, very quickly. And so but if you contrast that to the campaigns like in Maryland, we don't have access to the court records that I know of. Or if we do, we're not doing that kind of mailing. And so it's a much longer sales cycle. I'll tell you this. The reason we do book funnels with family law and not with like speeding and traffic and DUI is twofold. First of all, speeding traffic and DUI is high urgency, low ticket. It's not a very high trust transaction. High volume, because there's always some guy speeding. There's a cop with a radar gun. But in family law, like when you are dealing with probably the most emotionally troubling scenario that most individuals will ever face, which is the divorce from the person they're in love with. And many times they have a child as well to engage with an attorney that takes such an incredible amount of vulnerability, but also an incredible amount of trust. And so when you're just Googling and you click on an ad and you find a website, that's not a trust building device. It looks just like everybody else. But so if you take that as like the starting place, what you want to do is have some way to bond with that person and create trust through media. Now you can do that one-to-one, but one-to-one doesn't scale. You can do that through video. It's probably the second best or, but the problem with video is it's on this computer and anybody can not only can anybody be here, they all are here where most of your competitors are not is in that prospects mailbox with a device designed to create an emotional bond. So that's kind of how we view those uh, practice areas differently. And and, and that's the part that's fun to me is getting to look at because each landscape is different. And by the way, each, it's not like, doing family law in Florida is the same as doing family law in California. They're all, they're all radically different. And that's the fun part for me. So yeah. that's where we, that's how we look at it. Yeah. That's awesome, man. And like, I want to kind of transition to, to close this out in terms of people who might be thinking about this. I definitely found, so I'm going to ask you this as a, as a marketer to a marketer, but I want 
the listener to keep in mind this as somebody who might be considering something like this, right? So at the end of the day, it's very different to create something new or try something that's new or be a beta tester or be one of the first people to try one of these things. But it's a completely different set of rewards for somebody who's doing that. And then, of course, there's always the opportunity where somebody can just take the blue chip. You know, they can spend 10K on AdWords and probably get a return on investment from that. Probably not the highest, probably not the most exciting, but marginal. Yeah. In terms of the situations with the people that you've had the most success, like what kind of person resonates the most with having one of these innovative strategies? And, and you know, what, what has really led to success on the client side of things? Because I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of input required in terms of getting these things together. And, you know, honestly, I think it takes a bigger set of cojones to, to, to be running this as the person who's signing up for the ad budget. So what have you noticed in the people that have had the best results from this from, from the, the client side of things? Yeah, so there's a couple of things and it's a really important question, not just marketer to marketer, but also anybody that is thinking of you know growing in these ways. And so the first thing I want to clarify about that is that, is that I didn't really invent this. This is a long standing strategy, but it's been buried in all this noise. I mean, I didn't invent any of this have just pieced it together from studying my mentors. So that's one. So it's not really as, as radical as it might sound. It's just kind of been lost throughout the ages. But what makes a, a good, like the perfect mindset for somebody to do this is A, they have to be willing to invest in their business. They have to be. You're not going to grow by shrinking your ad budget. It's There's no way to do it. And the goal is not to save money. Like you shouldn't be trying to save a dollar or 10 cents or whatever. You should be trying to find ways to multiply it. And in order to multiply it, the bigger your base, the greater the multiple in my experience. So that's the first part. The second part is you have to be willing to do the things that your competitors are not. And if you look around and everybody's doing it, it's a pretty good sign that you should start somewhere else. Now, if you want what everybody else has, average results, then by definition, you can engage in that average behavior. But over the long run, the return on that's always going to diminish. So someone that's willing to invest in their business. And then I'd say someone that's willing to do things that other people aren't, which a lot of people will say that they're open to that when it comes time to write the check, scares a lot of guys, scares a lot of girls. It's scary. But that's why most people aren't doing it. And that's why most people aren't as successful as they want to be, because they won't step past that fear and write the check. The third thing I'll say is they need, they must, must, must have a some kind of foundational study and direct marketing and sales because ultimately now for the clients that we work with if it's going to fall apart it almost always falls apart when we hand the baton and the client takes over the follow-up process now we've looked at tons of ways for us to literally just do that for them and, and have them write the check and provide the service we're still working on that but let's say someone has spent fifty thousand dollars a year in pay-per-click and they come to me and they say hey this isn't working the first thing i'm going to say is well look Anybody can do the Google ads we've done for you. Anybody can do the funnel that we've done for you. We write better copy. You know, there's a difference there. If we were doing a book funnel, that'd be a different discussion. But my question to them is, show me how many follow-up calls you had. Give me the call recordings where you implemented the call script. Show me how, what your call answer rate. Show me that the direct mail went out. Let me, of course, let me look at the offer, which we did for you. So we know it's good. Let's look at the copy so we know it's good. But the leverage for most people is in everything that happens after my company does our job. Because... We can pour water into a bucket with holes in it all day long as a, as a tried and true analogy. But we have to plug those holes. And so one of the biggest things that we talk about when we take on clients is what's your sales process? What's your follow-up process? What are you doing right now? Because we can light, we can pour gasoline on a fire that's already burning. What is incredibly difficult to do is certainly not, uh, and in my opinion, a place for the agency to do the work is to train uh, the person on how to manage the follow-up process. So I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but that's where that's a big criteria for us because 
I mean, you know, as you know, I mean, the, the lead generation part is pretty easy. Where the rubber meets the road is what happens when that lead starts engaging with the company. I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but that's what has been my experience so far. You know? Yeah. And hundred percent too. The thing that's kind of interesting too, and like, you know, I'm sure it's the case for you as well, but just like, you know, you, you come to speak to people that have all levels of education before they meet you. One of the yeah. things that I've always found fascinating is the people that tend to be the best at marketing, the people who tend to have come the farthest before we end up meeting them have the most thorough understanding of what is within their control and what's outside of their control. Mm -hmm. You, I mean, again, and then this is just like the kind of people who get mad because a test didn't work out. That's tough. I mean, I mean, everyone crosses that bridge at some point, but the other people realize that, okay, well, that's just a test. We're going to run a different thing under a different hypothesis next time. And then, you know, we're working towards it. If it doesn't work out, but, um, but yeah, it's like, you know, it's one of those things that I think it all kind of boils down to direct response education, like you mentioned, but it's kind of interesting to see where those things line and as far as, you know, just the life experience before that. But, um, Randy, this has been an awesome conversation, man. I'm glad I was able to ask you a couple of questions as an interviewer that <laughs> might not have been easier or, uh, might have been weird to ask just in our conversations, but it's been awesome <laughs> having you. For anyone who's digging this, anyone who thinks this is awesome and wants to get in your world, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah. If you want to reach out to me or my company or my team, send an email to hello at leadsgrow.io. It's hello, like it sounds, leads is plural, grow, and then .io, not .com. And that'll hit our inbox and we can we can have a conversation that way. Okay. Fantastic. Randy, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. And for everybody else, I will see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode. 